They say that getting in shape is hard, but no one told you about the struggle. It's time for you to get healthy, but business and family make life complicated. Discover all the high-performance secrets that founders and busy entrepreneurs use to ensure they stay fit and lean, no matter how busy they get. This podcast is a reminder to use those secrets, which make getting in shape easy and stress-free, while doing it in a way that fits your busy lifestyle. And ultimately, this will make you a better performer at work and home. You're listening to The High Performance Founder with your host, Dan Goh. What is up? And welcome back to the podcast or welcome to the podcast if this is your first time. Uh, today, we do have a special guest. His name is Michael Arrington. And in 2008, he was selected by Time Magazine as one of the most influential people in the world. He's the founder of TechCrunch and CEO of Arrington Capital. And uh, in this particular podcast, we talk about uh, everything from uh, his views on uh, crypto, uh, what we should necessarily do in this upcoming uh, recession, in this dark period. And we also talk about what he looks for, the red flags that he finds in founders, and also the things, the commonalities that he finds in successful founders. We, we do have this really cool a uh, little conversation that that happens in regards to um, personality types, and also the different the different personality types that he looks for uh, within when he is actually investing into another business. So I'm pretty sure you're going to enjoy this conversation. We talk about a lot of things, talk about some uh, personal things. We also talk about his health journey as well. Uh, he went from 320 pounds to uh, about 220 at 11% body fat after he had sold TechCrunch. So that that in itself is very eye-opening and a very good uh, conversation to really roll on. So without further ado, here is my interview with Michael Arrington. All right. Welcome to the podcast. Today, we have a special guest. Uh, his name is Michael Arrington. And in 2008, he was selected by Time Magazine as one of the most influential people in the world. He, was, he is the founder of TechCrunch and CEO of Arrington Capital. Uh, and Mike, I just want to say thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate you being on here. Thanks for having me on, Dan. I, as a special guest, I know I'm very uh, I'm special. Are all of your guests special or just occasionally you have a special guest? Hmm, that's a very good question. Uh, some of them are people I've had previous relationships with who have done mm -hmm. uh, some significant things. As humans, they are very special. Uh, but yeah. for in your case, I would have to say that uh, in, in regards to the accolades that you have, uh, in life, uh, you would yeah. be probably one of the most special people. The most I've special. Had. So of all the, the special most. people, I'm among the most special. So far, wow, yes. That's well, <laughs> I hope I live up to your expectations today on this podcast. Oh, for sure. For sure. Okay, so before we get into it, uh, I want to get into just what is Arrington Capital and what does it do? Yeah. We're a hedge fund, which just means we have capital from third-party investors, and we try to make a little bit of money, turn into more money, uh, and we're completely focused on crypto. So I started this in 2017. I moved from a venture model where I had venture funds in Silicon Valley. When you imagine a venture fund, that's what I was doing, to completely stopping that and focusing 100% on cryptocurrencies. And our fund is... We do a lot of illiquid investments. We invest in private companies. And then we do a lot of just trading of liquid coins with a variety of trading strategies as well. Nice, nice. And 
I've I've heard this a couple of times that the fact that you're in crypto right now is is not necessarily was because of the tech or anything else. It was actually because of a girl. Yeah, you found that, huh? Yeah, <laughs> I uh, look. I was happy. I had sold TechCrunch. I had my third venture fund. I was a little bored. Venture was getting like routine. There's just things that were annoying about it. Living in Silicon Valley was starting to become very annoying. Um, and and I went on a date with somebody. It was just a date. We went on a date. We had tea. And she starts talking about her startup. And so the first thing I made is really clear. This is a date, right? You're not pitching me for money. She's like, no, it's a date. But I want to talk about crypto. And at the time, I thought it was largely like Bitcoin was cool. ETH was cool. But largely everything else was just nonsense. And she's like, no, it's not all pyramid schemes. There's some really good stuff here. And so I went to a couple of meetups with her. Um, which were really fun in 2017. And I, and I actually was looking at it critically as a potential investor. And I, I liked what I saw. And so I decided like, if I'm going to do it, I need to do it. So I, I, I left my old fund with my partner, Pat, it's still doing great. And I just completely focused on crypto. I would have done it with Pat, but Pat had no interest in crypto. So what made sense was for us to go, you know, separate ways and stay friends. And yeah, it was all to impress a girl. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and what were the different, what are like the dinner conversations with, uh, with your wife, Natalia right now? Cause it's, it may seem yeah. like it would be like a hundred percent crypto based since both of you are in that field right now. Well, we have a 15 year old daughter. So quite a bit of our dinner conversations taken up, taken up with teen angst and drama. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and that's, that's always fun. Um, but we, um, we do talk a lot of crypto. So her startup is called Propy, P-R-O-P-Y. It's a real estate crypto startup. It's doing really well. Uh, she she does some NFT stuff where like you take your house and you turn it into an NFT, you attach an NFT to it, and then you sell the NFT. Well, selling an NFT takes moments. Selling a house takes weeks. So they've kind of automated this process that's pretty exciting. So they're doing great. She's raised a couple rounds of financing. Um and it's great, but also she advises my fund. So she hears about deals all the time because she goes to different events than I do. And so a lot of our great deals have come in through her meeting people. She's a pretty good investor herself. And so um, it's great. Yeah. I would guess that uh, she has like a little bit of a fingertip feel if she's uh, if she's actually going to these events, if she's meeting all these founders. Yeah. And, and probably that gives you a little bit of uh, a little bit of insight. Uh, in regards to yeah. what you would invest in yourself, right? One hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, yeah. she is literally an advisor, like formally, and she earns what she like, what she gets from that. She earns and then some. So, gotcha, yeah. gotcha. It's, it reminds me of like myself and my uh, my wife. Uh, we're a little bit into like real estate down here, and mm-hmm. uh, she had worked for the city of Toronto. She actually has seen like maybe thousands of like blueprints of houses, and every time she looks at a house right now, she she kind of knows like she has this. Finger spits and feels, feels what like the Germans call like a fingertip feel for every single one of these deals. Yeah, so that's really cool. You guys are, are kind of like a powerhouse couple a little bit. I mean, maybe, but we the real estate stuff bugs me because when it, we we bought a house, we moved to Miami a year ago and we bought a house. Yeah, and I had like I had literally like I'm a gardener. Like one of my hobbies is gardening. So like, and Florida is a perfect place to grow tomatoes. In Seattle, where I lived before, like you cannot grow tomatoes for a variety of reasons that you know, gardening podcast and get into, but it's <laughs> nighttime temperatures. So I was like, I can finally grow tomatoes. All I need, the only requirement I had for the house was that there's enough of a spot somewhere where I could plant a couple of tomato plants. We're talking mm-hmm. about a square yard would have been enough to grow plenty of tomatoes. 
so we ended up with a waterfront house on a posted stamp size lot and there's literally nowhere to put a tomato plant. So um, she got what she wanted and I have, you know, no tomato plants. So Okay. okay so this, this is uh, very interesting because like you're telling me right now that you're a gardener and also like I know that uh, if you weren't doing crypto right now, you would actually be in animal welfare. Yeah, like what? What is the uh, draw towards gardening, and the draw towards uh, animals in the first place? Well, gardening is easy. So we grew up uh, in Southern California, which is also a great place to grow stuff. And my parents bought a new house in the seventies, and they didn't, so they could do whatever they wanted with the, the yard was just dirt, and they could finish it however they wanted. And they took a big chunk of land, they put a fence, and they left it as dirt. And then they did nothing, but every time we cut the lawn, they'd throw the lawn clippings in and then, you know, then the, the kitchen stuff throw in. And then after a couple of years, you have pretty good dirt and we start growing stuff. And I would grow like, I would take like a popcorn kernel and grow it. And then I'd be surprised that like the corn it grew wasn't regular corn. Like you couldn't really eat it. Right? Yeah. Um, we'd throw tomatoes out and like we'd have tomato plants. And so I just, I don't know, it's just a thing I did as a kid. And so it's always been a hobby for me. And um, up in Seattle, I had a in my house up there, I had an orchard and chickens and goats. And it was just, it's just very calming to me to garden. Um, mm. So yeah, it, that's not part of my life right now. Oh, well, it seems like it's a part of your life with, uh, with the hedge fund right now. It's just like you're, diff- yeah. you're growing different tomatoes at this very yeah. moment. Awesome. Yeah. So I want to take you back a, a little bit. Uh, you know, you were doing corporate securities law uh, previously, yeah. way in the beginning you left to become a surf bum uh, to a large yep. extent uh, living in uh, Manhattan beach. Those are good, good times. Yeah. 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 Well, okay. At first, and then you left to actually go and you know, become a blogger and found and yeah. found the tech crunch. But yeah. what led you to like going and doing this like corporate job to just being a complete surf bum uh, and just like surfing every day and playing video games all the time? You, yeah, you found that. Um, <laughs> I, it wasn't quite that simple. I left uh, my, my corporate legal job to join a startup and the startup was doing pretty well. It eventually failed. Um, and I left that startup after a year to create my own company. And, and that company, we sold a year after we started it for $33 million, but we had raised $18 million. And back then you had liquidation you still have liquidation preferences but generally they're 1x which means the investors need to get their money back before other people can take money hmm. well back then it was 2x and so you know 2x 18 is 36 million so basically i didn't make any money but i learned <laughs> a valuable lesson be a venture capitalist don't take a venture capitalist money if you can if you can avoid it uh, um, i started a couple companies including one in ottawa not too far from where you are now yeah. and those you know they did okay um, but eventually I was like, I just want to like chill out. And I was living on the beach in Manhattan beach. I'd surfed growing up. And so I just started surfing like a lot. And when I wasn't surfing, I was, I was playing video games. Yeah. And, um, my girlfriend at the time was super impressed, uh, that I had no <laughs> income, uh, was burning money pretty quickly and, and just was, you know, I was, I was in pretty good shape from the surfing, but was like, it wasn't an impressive young man. And so, um, she left me (laughs) and then I realized I probably need to like get a job. I also ran out of money. Um, and I actually burned out on video games. I've never played video games since then. It was in my early thirties and I just like, I'm done with them. I just, I'm not into it anymore. I hope hope you haven't burned out on surfing because surfing is just like, no, but moving to Seattle burned me out on surfing. I mean, it's like, you know, there's very few places to go. It's rocky beaches. You're wearing the thickest wetsuit you can find. I just, I haven't surfed down a decade. 
I got to take you to Mexico with me or something like that. Like it, once you have uh, some time, uh, surfing would, is just one of those things that are just like, just I, amazing. Yes, it is. Um, yeah. So I realized when I was like done being a bum, I didn't really, I'd taken so much time off. I didn't really know what was going on in the, uh, in the world, in the tech world. So I had to start researching and that's when I started TechCrunch because I was researching and I realized there was no place for what I needed, which was a place for startups to be talked about. So I started publishing my research and TechCrunch sort of came out of that and it ended up being the first successful startup I really did. I mean, I'd had startups, like I said, I sold it for $33 million, but I didn't make any money. Hmm. Um, TechCrunch, I never took venture capital because I'd learned that lesson and, and it was the first capital I was able to generate. So Interesting. And then uh, and, and it, TechCrunch is not just a blog. Uh, TechCrunch is actually known as uh, the place where uh, founders break stories. It definitely used to be. I think it's it's different now. I mean, like I'm yeah. kind of a no bullshit kind of guy. Um, TechCrunch has a lot of bullshit, a lot of politics now. And so yeah. I think they try hard, um, but it's not nearly the power that it was, you know, a decade ago. Do you feel like it's uh, kind, of, kind of fallen prey to the wokeism that is happening? Uh, yeah, well, it certainly has. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, they hired a chief diversity officer, mm. you know, they started writing about that kind of stuff, which is fine. I didn't mind it, but like, they also like they stop being aggressive on breaking stories. You know, journalists who just want to get along with everybody aren't generally very fun to read. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's fine and it could change again. But uh, I think TechCrunch, like, I don't find myself going to it that often to read it. Yeah, um, just so, yeah. I don't think any of it. Well, I, I used to go to TechCrunch to find out the latest news uh, mm-hmm. about startups, but I don't find myself going there anymore. Or don't even yeah. see them being featured whatsoever. But yeah. that could be, that could just be like a change of philosophy as well. And yeah. you, you've basically built TechCrunch to be one of pretty much like the biggest, uh, we could call it blog, but I would actually call it news source for uh, for startups and founders. What would you say yeah. is like your biggest lessons from running TechCrunch and selling it? Uh, well, I, you know, I'd run companies before that, so I, I kind of had the basics, but I, I tend to be pretty competitive and I work myself to death. If I, if I let myself mm-hmm. and, um, so I had hired a CEO at TechCrunch, a woman named Heather Hardy, who's a partner now at my fund. And, and she came out of, um, uh, Murdoch's organization, Fox, like she had bought MySpace, And so she was Harvard MBA, brilliant CEO. So she ran the company. I just wrote. And so mm-hmm. even though I was running a company, I wasn't the CEO and I didn't do anything other than write. And it was just, I was on a treadmill. I just, I never wanted to miss a story. I'd stay up all night. I would talk to people all over the world to break a story. I was good at it. But I gained a lot of weight. I never exercised. Um, we used to have Chipotle delivered to the office, you know, and I'd eat like a full burrito with chips and guacamole and then usually immediately pass out, not fully understanding <laughs> what I'd just done to my body. Um, it, it, so it was, in that sense, it was terrible. And so by the time I sold the company, I was mentally like, I, I, I was physically unhealthy and mentally of course that suffers as well yeah so it was a good time in 2010 to step away from that yeah and uh we were talking a little bit before uh we got on this podcast and you were saying that at one point you were pushing 320 pounds uh yeah that was my fattest point i mean i'm six four so i'm pretty tall but yeah i mean i was like i was pretty fat and I, and I, this was actually like, we're zooming forward now. I didn't like, I didn't, I actually put on more weight when I sort of retired yeah. and it was like 2000, late 2015. I finally realized like I need to do something. Um, 
And, and that's when I, I ended up taking all of 2016 off and just focusing on fitness. And it, it changed my life and the habits, um, you know, had stuck for the most part. And, and what are those? Science, oh, sorry. Uh, what were those habits for you? Uh, what were the things that kind of stuck with you? Uh, well, okay. So going into 2016, I was, you know, 38% body fat, 6'4", 45 years old. And, you know, well, 320 pounds. I remember the 320 because I decided um, I was going to do Weight Watchers. I did that because my mom had successfully lost weight on Weight Watchers decades before. And so my mom's like, I'll do Weight Watchers with you. And again, I'm like, I don't, I didn't know anything about proper eating at that point. But I'm like, okay. And I remember at the weigh-in at, at Weight Watchers, I was 320. I'm competitive. So I took to Weight Watchers. I did it the way they wanted me to do it, which is, you know, effectively starving yourself. And that's fine. Calorie deficit definitely works. And, um, oh, by the way, I also, my blood sugar, fasting blood sugar was up at 115. I was pre-diabetic. Um, and I didn't want to get on the drugs. Sorry, that was actually the catalyst for losing the weight. Was not wanting to get on the on the drugs for type 2 diabetes. Um, so, you know, I, I also exercised like crazy. I started working out with a personal trainer and swimming most days. So my blood pressure went to high school levels. Perfect, right? My blood sugar dropped almost immediately down to very healthy levels just because I wasn't eating the carbs. I was still eating, I wasn't eating like a keto diet. So there were carbs in my diet. I started the day with like um, oatmeal, but like it just wasn't enough. And so my blood sugar dropped down and I dropped 80 pounds in six months and it wow. wasn't that hard. Um, and it was, it was mostly the diet. And, and, but also like I, I went down to, I went down to about 11% body fat. I looked good with a shirt off. Um, built a lot of muscle with a personal trainer and I felt better than I'd ever felt in my life, literally. Um, and that by the, really, I said I took a whole year off and I did, but by summer, you know, I was in Italy with my shirt off, like having a great time. And so um, that I know now, like, and then I learned about keto and carbs at this point, like I know how to eat properly. I don't always do it, um, but I know how, and I, the exercise has stuck with me and, you know, I'm pretty religious about that. Yeah. And then, um, what kind of exercise do you do to, uh, keep yourself running in tip top shape? Well, I'm not in tip top shape. Um, in fact, recently I've lost, I've lost 20 pounds because last year, I think the move and stuff caused me to stop eating. Here's the other problem. Hmm. If it was just me in the house, I would buy exactly what I'm going to eat and I would be perfect. But Natalia, who's in perfect shape, 95 pounds soaking wet is, loves chocolate and sugar. She starts the day with the cookie. She ends the day with the cookie. So the cookies are there. They're there. They're staring at me. They're saying, come eat me. And it's like, I'm in good shape, but I don't eat a cookie. Mm. And then it's all over. Cause then I start getting the sugar cravings. Right. And so that's a constant battle. Yeah. This is, it reminds me of like uh, myself and my wife a little bit. She's uh, I wouldn't call my wife like rail thin whatsoever. She's pretty in shape. But uh, she has this proclivity to like order Uber Eats and DoorDash at like 9 p.m. at night and to also bring these like freaking cookies and yeah. whatever else you can find like from outside. And she has this uh, unlimited amount of self-control. Yeah. She can literally eat a piece of candy yeah. and then just leave it at that. That's and if, ridiculous. Yes. Yeah. And if I eat a piece of candy, I'm just like, you eat okay, all the candy. Is, yeah, yeah I, need to, I need to finish the bag. You know, yeah. essentially. <laughs> okay, so I mean, it it is tough, and also you have uh, you have a daughter as well, and yeah. and then there's just like all these things combined with their eating habits and yours. Yeah. Um, 
I know you just lost uh, a, a good 20 pounds uh, just recently, but but what would you say is like your your health practices that you have that that just kind of keep you on the straight and narrow right now? So my current, my, oh, you know, I meant to look this up. There's a, I changed my workout. So I lift most days um, yeah. and I love lifting. It's not, it's not, it's just lovely. And it, I have a gym in my house. So like a full gym. Um, and uh, Doug Brignoli is a old school bodybuilder and he recently wrote a book um basically working out when you're old i'm Mm. over 50 now Mm. and you know squats are gone deadlifts are gone but i'm using a dual cable machine to do equivalents and i think the mechanics of it actually end up being just as good i haven't seen any drop in in muscle mass at all so i'm working out differently but almost every day Mm. probably five days a week i'm lifting although maybe three of those are super heavy and two are pretty light combined with cardio and then the, the weather here in Miami, especially this time of year, is you can't really exercise outside. So we, we got a Peloton and and I, I, I forced myself, but that's work because mm-hmm. the classes, do you have a Peloton? Have you ever done it? I, I've done the Peloton before. Don't necessarily own one. Yeah. The, the classes are just like, I mean, they have either these super hot guys or these super hot women, but it's like brain dead, stupid, you know, points they make and I, I mean i actually want to throw the damn thing across the room but they have a new thing on peloton where it's a game and you're basically a tire and you just have to almost like a pac-man go do stuff and so that i can handle and so that i've fallen back in love with the peloton and i try to do 20 minutes every day 30 minutes if i'm not lifting that day and that that keeps my blood pressure just dialed in which is awesome. all i really care about for that yeah awesome awesome the and main the, thing though dan is the food yeah. and so the yeah. main thing i did it's always the food right i mean you don't yeah. you know yeah i last year i decided i was talking to a friend a friend's bodyguard because a lot of these guys in crypto have security and he's like given where i am at with the diet and with the food that's in the house i have to just go to one meal a day and it turned out that's perfect for me. Mm-hmm. So all of this year, I've just eaten dinner, and that the, the weight just fell off. I still I'm mostly keto, but it's really just eating. I don't eat till mm-hmm. like six o'clock at night, and then I eat, and then I'm done. And that that to me has been like a perfect nuance to being fit. That's been great. Yeah. So I've been doing one meal a day, and it's been it's been really good, and and mostly keto, um, but you know, trying to keep carbs under twenty a day seems to work pretty well. Uh, but that's it. I mean, you can't keep weight on if you're only eating two hours a day. You have to really try to gain weight on that. So Yeah, yeah. Especially if you're eating like real food as well, right? Uh, sous vide with steak, grilled chicken, like, you know, it's every day. And it's so good. And Are you cooking your own meals right now? Yeah, we, uh, we have a cook. Um, Oh, that sounds a little douchey. We have somebody that cooks oh. for us, but I generally, what I do is like, I'll, I'll eat salads and stuff that she makes, but I'm grilling the meat. So I've gotten yeah. really good at it. And, uh, and so, yeah, we kind of work it out. Yeah. It's not douchey at all. Uh, I think guys of your caliber and, uh, entrepreneurs, uh, they, I mean, you're literally making like thousands of decisions a day, yeah. uh, and you don't have as much time. So you definitely have to get someone else to, to help you with the, uh, with the food prep and and all that kind of stuff, so it definitely, definitely helps. Yeah, definitely not douchey. Yeah. So you went from three twenty all the way down to about two forty, I would say, uh, and to eleven percent body fat. I got down to two twenty, which was my college weight. Eventually, it was just gotcha. eighty pounds real quick, and over the next couple of years, I dropped another twenty. Uh, right now, I'm at two forty and about fifteen to eighteen percent body fat. So nice. I'm okay. My blood sugar. So I have levels. I do the yeah. levels thing. Yeah. And uh, so that's a candy way of, you know, my blood sugar is 
rock solid. Eating once a day is going to do that. Blood pressure is good, but I, you know, I could drop some body fat. Yeah. So if you can look back to that particular transformation, what were the biggest uh, mental and energetic benefits that you got as a result from going, say, from uh, 320 down to like 220? That's like, that's 100 pounds. That's a, that's a, that's a person right there. It is. I mean, it is a person, but also when you, when you're six, four and weigh 320, losing 80 pounds is nothing like a woman who's five, six and loses 80 pounds. I mean, it, that's a much more difficult thing. For sure. Um, I, the, the mental clarity, and this is also why only eating once a day is like, I, I, I am mentally like great blood sugar, steady. I'm not eating and blowing that up. And so I, I'm just, once you're used to that and your body can account for it, it's it's so good you know mm-hmm. and even now like when i eat dinner um even if it's just keto you know i'm a little bit like food coma afterwards um especially when i'm eating you know 20 ounces of steak um is that bad by the way is 20 that's ounces too many ounces? Ama- no dude that's amazing i love that um, yeah but that's like the a tomahawk amazing or or two it's like two wagyu uh fillets are pretty nice too um yeah the meat's good uh and it's it's hard because I'm such, I'm so into animal welfare that mm-hmm. like there's some definite cognitive dissonance there. Yes. Um, and so I've been buying the meat from a farm that supposedly is as humane as possible about it. Mm-hmm. And um, that's the best I can do right now. Yeah. I was talking to a client of mine and he refuses to eat octopus. Yeah, I have too. Yeah. yeah they're smart. Oh, yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you just so put this good too. It tastes it's so good. good. It's yeah. so good. And it's like the macros on octopus are just incredible. High protein, low fat, all that kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah. Okay. So you don't need octopus anymore because it is. It I because, do eat octopus at one oh. restaurant here in Miami called Sea okay. Spice that has the best octopus I've ever had, but that's once a month. So. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and it's, you know, we take solace in the fact that if you're eating Wagyu, uh, they get treated pretty damn darn well. They get know? massaged every day. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm down with that. <laughs> a little cognitive dissonance with the with the animal uh, welfare thing, but you know, I yeah. mean, hey, can't go extreme with uh, either one of those things. So, along with like this uh, this physical angle, um, you know, going through all of those, uh, basically, it meant a massive transformation for yourself. Uh, you did it actually after you sold TechCrunch, mm-hmm. and and then there has to be some big lessons that you learned as a result of doing both of those things. You literally sold a company for, what was it like a hundred, hundred million dollars or, or no, no, TechCrunch sold for $30 million, 30 million. Okay. Yeah. Sorry about that. Um, and, and then you sold it for 30 million and then you, you kind of chilled a little bit and you took like 2016 to, yeah. to basically transform your entire life and your health. Yeah. Uh, what are your biggest lessons from, yeah. from going through those transformations? So the lesson I learned is, when I was doing TechCrunch and I was working so hard, and I mean, I mean, I was, we all work hard at different times. Like, this is insane. I mean, mm-hmm. I was working from when I'd wake up to passed out, and I did that for years. Um, I didn't think I had time to work out. I didn't have time for friends, family. I mean, I was working all the time. When you're writing news, it just, you get sucked into it. Yeah. And what I know now is if I had taken time back then taken an hour a day and done what I do now, I would have been better at my job. I would have lasted longer. I would have had the stamina and, and I didn't know that then I just thought work, work, work. And now I know, cause I work pretty hard now with this hedge fund. I told you before we started recording, I actually haven't gone to sleep yet today because mm. 
randomly, we just had something we had to deal with and I was up all night working on it. But that's very rare. And I forced myself, I have hours on my calendar that are that are sacred for working out every day. And I forced myself and it allows me to work harder. Yeah. Are you enjoying the show thus far? We go through so many resources and links with the podcast. It's tough to keep up. I get it. That's why Dan and the rest of the team put together the High Performance 7. It's a free online course that helps entrepreneurs get lean, build muscle, and increase energy in a way that fits their lifestyle. We go over things like how to burn fat like a 20-year-old, the lazy man's way to building muscle, the 10-minute Superman system, the lead domino that makes all other things easy, and so much more. The best part? As a valued listener of the show, you can access the High Performance 7 100% free of charge. That's right, for simply being awesome and tuning in. To get full access, all you have to do is go to www.highperformance7.com. It's high performance, all spelled out, and the number 7.com. And fill out the short form there for us to give you full access. Once again, www.highperformance7.com. Now, back to the show. In regards to uh, the amount of work that you're doing at TechCrunch, was this before you met Natalia? Uh, yeah, I met with- Natalia in 2000. I met Natalia about the time I lost all the weight. Okay, oh, okay. Too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's good. get yourself, uh, you know, a little bit attractive and uh, all that kind of stuff. And it just seems to be like honey with bees kind of thing. So, um, yeah. one thing I wanted to ask is like, you work your ass off. Uh, you're a very hard worker. Uh, especially in this hedge fund as well. How is the fi- how do you find yourself uh, catering to the family dynamic and balancing all that stuff out between like your health, your relationship with Natalia, your relationship yeah. with your daughter? How do you find yourself balancing all those things at once? Well, working from home helps. So, I mean, I, I've been working from home really since 2005 yeah. when I started TechCrunch. For a brief moment in TechCrunch, we had an office, but it was right around the corner. Um, so working from home helps, right? Like I'm always here. I can always like drop things and take the kid to the doctor or pick her up from school. Um, interestingly, my parents live with me now. So my parents are very retired. We've been trying to get them to move to Miami. So they're looking for a home, but they're living with us while they do that. So it's actually really nice. Like we've got my parents. It's just a big family. There's always somebody who can handle something like a drive or going to the doctor. Um, and it's great. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing that uh, your your daughter also gets this exposure to her grandparents as well, right? And she, she does, yeah. And she, uh, it, they're a very good influence on her. Awesome, yeah. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And in regards to uh, you know, you, you've built some massive companies. Uh, you deal with founders on a regular basis. Yeah. Uh, there was actually. Uh, a, a tweet that you put out uh, very recently, and it was about uh, you had this call with a crypto startup, and then they took a picture of you in the Zoom, then posted it to their Discord, uh, saying suggesting that you will yeah. actually be investing and partnering with them. And you actually said that this is dishonest; it's a very good way to get an immediate no. Yeah. And one of the things I want to ask you is like, what do you feel are your your red flags that you're looking for when you're dealing with founders or when you're dealing with startups? What are some things that you're looking at in regards to investing in the company or actually saying, I'm not going to invest in this company? 
Yeah, it's it's a fine line. That that company, um, the reason why it was bad was they took this picture of a Zoom where I was in it and they were in it, and they put it in their Discord. It, it suggested that I was investing in the company, and actually we were looking at it, and mm-hmm. but it was already a liquid token, and so the idea was, you know, it'll have it was just manipulative, and so I, I you, it's a fine line, but there's a line, and mm-hmm. so you you don't say or do things that suggest something that's bad just because you can say, well, I didn't actually say it. So it's okay. Cause no, you did actually say it. You purposely did that. And so that's, that was an easy no. Um, but when you look at like, I'm a guy, I like early stage because I like investing in people and I hate spreadsheets and I hate financial statements. And so once it gets to financial statements, usually that's, they've done great and they've moved on to other types of investors. Um, so I'm looking at, I'm looking at a founder and I, and I, and I think a lot about what their personality type is. We spend a lot of time with a psychology, psychology group called pathwise uh, that's based in Seattle. And, and we um, work with them to understand our own sort of psychological profile and those of our partners, how to work together better, but also how to like quickly understand somebody's sort of core personality type when you meet them and then understand like, you know, what they might, you know, how they might do as a, as an entrepreneur. Most entrepreneurs are narcissists. Mm-hmm. It takes it, narcissism leads you to well, be a narcissist. And so one of that is like, I'm a founder, I have a successful startup. I'm a, you know, that's sort of like saying I'm a surgeon, I'm a brain surgeon. Like it's something that gives you social validation. And so that's okay because that need for social validation will drive people to perform in ways that are quite useful if if you can work around the weaknesses, which is you're a fucking narcissist, right? And so um, we see a lot of narcissism. We also see a lot of psychopaths. And psychopaths are very hard to tell the difference between a psychopath and a narcissist, but there are a lot of psychopaths. You want to avoid mm-hmm. the psychopaths. You always want to avoid the psychopaths if you can. Doesn't what's, mean they're going to murder you, but they're definitely going <laughs> to fuck you. What's a, what's a signal for a psychopath that you've seen? Well, interestingly, if you just sort of let yourself feel the moment, right? Like, if let's say you were pitching me for money right now, and I just sort of like just chilled and sat back and let my body tell me what's going on. When you're around a psychopath, the hairs on the back of your neck literally stand up, like mm. it, literally. And so your body's telling you, like, you know, fear, run away, and and that's a really good sign. Like, if you're around somebody who's appearing to be narcissistic, but you actually are feeling some fear of them, there's a real good chance they're a psychopath. And so, you know, what will psychopaths do? Psychopaths won't always break the law. Sometimes they're lawful good, but they will like, they do sometimes get utility out of hurting you. Not physically necessarily, but you just don't generally want to do, you generally don't want to do business with them if you can avoid it. And if you are already doing business with them, you need to be very careful around them. Um, We also see schizoids. And so schizoids are, um, they're really the best. They're, uh, they, you know, if they're dysfunctional, they're schizophrenic, but a functional, healthy schizoid. And one of my partners is a schizoid just lives a very rich inner life. Isn't too concerned with what the world thinks about him or her. Um, and, and is also skeptical of new friendships, a little wary, but once they're your friend, the loyalty is undying. And so, um, schizoids are great. And we invest in a lot of schizoids. These are the typical entrepreneur, I'm sorry, engineering types that are quite Mm. often, on the spectrum a little bit, which is absolutely fantastic if they are. They make great entrepreneurs. Um, and so we quite often see those. The other personality types, I'm paranoid, by the way, uh, and it works for me. But the other personality types 
personality types generally don't work great as entrepreneurs, right? They're manic-depressive. You've got um, obsessive-compulsive, histrionic. These are the ones that, you know, they're, they can be great people, but generally they're not successful entrepreneurs. Yeah. And what would you say are some commonalities of uh, successful entrepreneurs then, or successful founders that you would want to invest in? Uh, well, they, we want them to swing big. Like they need to have a big idea. Um, if somebody is, you know, look, I'm going to build this little feature product and then somebody's going to buy us, it's, it rarely works out. Hmm. Um, you want somebody who's really swinging for the fences. And, and then, you know, sometimes if they don't quite make that home run, there's something interesting there anyway. Um, the best founders need to also deal with rejection um, failure well. And so, you know, the markets are tough right now. So a lot of our companies are failing and we're, and we're starting to see what these guys are, and women are made of. Sometimes they just fall apart. Like everything isn't going perfectly and they just fall apart. And we, we've mm. seen that. And, and it's sad. It's sort of like, it, it's not like being in combat because I've never been in combat, but they say you never know how you're going to act in combat until you're in combat. But you never know how you're going to deal with failure until you, until you deal with failure. And so sometimes like you just realize like you don't have whatever it is that lets you sort of be steady through the failure. Um, but other times they do great. They, they work harder. They, they try to figure it out. They keep scrapping to survive. And those are the ones that we like to invest in again, even though they just failed. Yeah. And, and what would you like, how important is failure in business in the first place? Cause everyone talks about the, the fucking successes and, you know, I did this yeah. and I did that, but people rarely talk about the, the biggest crashes that they've had, uh, the biggest failures that uh, they had when those are the most important. If you never failed, you actually wouldn't know what you're made of. And mm. you, and it means you're not swinging the bat hard enough. Uh, you're being, you're playing it to say failure is not only like inevitable, it's not, it's not a disaster. It's like, I wrote a blog post in like two minutes a decade ago called, are you a pirate? You can just search for it. Are you a pirate tech crunch? You'll see it. I had a picture of Johnny Depp. It was a throwaway blog post, but it, it, it was leaps and bounds. The most read blog post I ever wrote. And it basically like one of the points was, look, if you fail, you don't die. You're not like eaten by the lions. You just lost some money. And if you did it right, it's not even catastrophic. You just start again. And, and it's very healthy to do that. And so we're looking for pirates. Like we're looking for people who eat risk for breakfast. Hmm. And when they fail, they just try again. Yeah. And it seems like we're headed towards uh, a little bit of one of the riskier periods in uh, yeah. not only like stocks, but cryptocurrencies and with the government printing money, inflation yeah. being at its highest. And actually, I want to I want to take the one thing that you said a year ago, which was, uh, you know, they're talking about Bitcoin going to like 100K. Yeah, and then you actually said uh, you have to look at the price of gas because the price of gas is going to dictate what is going to happen to is actually going to dictate inflation, which is actually going to dictate what happens to Bitcoin in the future as well. I have no memory so, of saying that. Okay, awesome. sounds like a smart thing to say. Like it's a very year, but, you could, yeah. well. You basically called it. It was like a year ago. You, you basically called what's happening right now. And yeah. what would you say that uh, that people should do? in order to protect themselves and their families yeah. in this uh, period of darkness that we may be headed towards? Well, this advice would have been useful three or four months ago, but like I, I have some groups of friends and I gave them this advice and they mostly just ignored it. Um, and it's fair, like, but we spend a lot of time with, um, we have advisors that have nothing to do with crypto. Um, they're just macroeconomic advisors. And so we think a lot about the overall market and, you know, months ago, like late last year, even they were like starting to say, Hey, this inflation thing looks like it has legs. And the fed is continuing to loosen 
into inflation, it's, this might be a problem that is, could overwhelm things a little bit. And so, you know, what did we do? We basically got rid of all of our leverage. We occasionally use leverage. We got out of leverage because the le- leverage is what kills you in a downturn um, and it kills you fast. Um, and then we also moved to cash. So we did that. Mm-hmm. So the advice now, I think everybody kind of understands it, but here's where we are. And in fact, it's, I don't know when you're going to post this, but right now it's 12.15 on Wednesday, East Coast. At 2 p.m., the Fed is going to tell us their next interest rate move. So an hour and 45 minutes. We assume it's going to be 75 basis points. The market has largely priced that in. All the signals that the Fed has given are it's going to be 75 basis points because inflation, the inflation CPI print last Friday was higher than they thought it was going to be. Um, And that's great. They're trying to kill off the inflation. Um, The problem is, is our sovereign debt levels are way too high. And, and what that means is we're paying a lot of money every year in interest. It's like $300 billion a year in interest. And it should be way higher than that, except interest rates have been so low for so long now that our debt has grown exponentially. And yet interest payments haven't because they keep the interest rates down. As, they, as inflation pushes interest rates up and the Fed is pushing interest rates up to try to fight inflation, interest rates are going to go up. But we can't afford it. Like, we can't even afford a percent on the debt. Hmm. We we already spend over 100% of tax revenue on debt, entitlements, and defense. We we can't afford it. So we're going to have bigger deficits, more debt, which more limits, like, what we can do. So the smart people I know think that eventually the Fed's going to make a show of fighting inflation, but there's only so far they can go before we literally run into sovereign debt default situations, which can't happen. They'll have to start loosening. And when they do that, they're loosening into an inflationary environment. And all I know about that is the one place to be is crypto when that happens. I mean, real estate should do okay, but you know, if we're in a recession, it may not. Gold is going to do great. I think gold at 10,000 is not a crazy thing. I don't, I don't know if it drops $500 before that though. Um, and Bitcoin at some point, you know, you need to have some allocation to, to crypto. Yeah. yeah. And it seems like uh, with Bitcoin going the way it is, it's uh, I think it's like June fifteenth right now. Yeah, um, Bitcoin's at like around twenty one thousand. Uh, it's yeah. gone down significantly. Then now would be kind of a good time to dollar cost average into Bitcoin. Not necessarily a uh, financial advice, but you know. Well, I, I don't know if I agree with that. I mean, hmm. like here an example is um, I don't know what the S and P is today, but uh, it was. Uh, there's some people we like who say the S&P could go to 2,400. There's some support at 2,400. I think it's at 36 or 700 right now. The last time the S&P was at 2,400, Bitcoin was at 4,000. So we don't model out Bitcoin going to 4,000 if the S&P goes down to 2,400, but it could. And so we're going to have 75 basis points today, probably. I may look foolish, you know, tomorrow. If I say that, it might be 50 basis points. We're going to have 75 basis points next month, probably. While Europe, China, and Japan are loosening, it's a shit show. Mm-hmm. It is unprecedented. The macro guys I know are scared because they don't know what to invest in. So the best thing right now is cash, mm-hmm. fiat, dollars, Canadian dollars, whatever. Just hold yeah. on to your fiat until it becomes a little more obvious. Because what if you buy Bitcoin now and it ends up going to ten or $8,000? Yeah. What, what would you say is, uh, is an obvious signal? Well, the Fed, so if the Fed today, again, everybody's going to know once they see this, are you publishing this tomorrow? Do you know? Uh, probably within like two weeks from now. Oh, yeah. two weeks from now. Well, yeah. so we, you know, we'll look really dumb no matter what happens. <laughs> but if the Fed does 50 basis points tomorrow, it's a sign of capitulation that they might have to start loosening. 
and Europe loosening this morning is more pressure on the Fed. So I think that is when they loosen, when they tighten less than they could, that's a definite sign that capitulation might be coming. But, you know, on a bigger picture, Dan, one of the advice I give people is if you can afford it, just get one Bitcoin for each of your kids. Hmm. So if you have one kid, just find a way at some point to save one Bitcoin for them. And what that means is if I'm right and Bitcoin becomes like a default reserve currency, Having one Bitcoin puts you in the absolute elite of the elite because there's only 21 million Bitcoin. There's far more than 21 million millionaires in the world right now. So you will be like a hundred millionaire equivalent if you have one Bitcoin. And would you say that uh, that was a little bit of a prediction? And are you aiming for Bitcoin to be the global reserve currency at some point? I would love it to be. Um, You know, a great book is the Bitcoin Standard by Safe. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he he lays out an argument. It's a play on gold standard. He lays out an argument why um, Bitcoin has a chance to go there. In fact, he argues it will go there unless governments move to stop it. And the reason it will go there is everybody always grow, grabs the hardest money. Mm-hmm. And Bitcoin is harder even than gold because um, the stock to flow is lower. And so, yeah, I think it will. On the other hand, you know, the American empire may or may not like be okay with that. And so that's why I spend a lot of time donating money to politicians who are friendly to crypto because that's the biggest risk is that the US government goes completely anti-crypto and does everything they can to stop it up to and including making it illegal, which they did with gold in the 1930s. So, yeah, I heard that you uh, stopped uh, giving money to politicians at some point uh, because because uh, one of them just turned out to be a little bit crazier than you thought, Corey, thought they were. Uh, Cory Booker. Like, what yeah. the fuck happened to him? <laughs> like, I he was, like, totally normal Democrat. Yeah. Reached across the aisle. I donated to his campaign. I gave him the most I could. And then he turned into, like, crazy eyes. And, like, I don't understand. <laughs> and so, yeah, I generally don't. But I do, like, congressional seats and senators um, who will make a public pro-Bitcoin stance, I will absolutely donate to. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I like that because uh, just in general, you know, whatever gets lobbied is is going to be the the thing that gets pushed through in the first place. So I like yeah. that you're putting your money where your mouth is. Um, but it's also disgusting yeah. that we have to do that in the U.S. You know? It's, it is actually uh, the worst uh, yeah. where incentives are ruling the entire working class, where it's ruling uh, pretty much what gets uh, pushed through. Yeah. And it also gets uh, it, the the incentives that are around healthcare uh, right now Crazy. are disgusting. It, um, it's ridiculous. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah thankfully, you didn't go through the pharmaco- pharmacology model of getting your health back in order or, or taking care of your health. Oh, very- well, that's a one-way street to, you know, unhappiness, right? I mean, 100%. If you can't control... If you're looking at like being on insulin the rest of your life and getting sicker and sicker and sicker, yeah. or just like eating properly, doctors don't even mention it. They're just like, hey, you're diabetic now. Welcome to the club. We're going to get you on insulin. Everything's going to be great. And then, but what does the insulin do? It makes it worse, right? And uh, it, it's terrible. Like the very first thing they said is, you're type 2 diabetic. We're going to fix your diet. And if you can't do that, we're going to put you on insulin, and insulin is eventually a death sentence. I think far more people – it's so easy. Mm. It's so easy. Just stop eating shit. And, like, and like, sure, some people don't have the willpower, but maybe they have the willpower if you tell them if you don't stop eating shit, 
you're going to go on insulin and 10 years, we're going to cut off your legs. And, and like with this percentage of a high likelihood. Yeah. So. Yeah. I was actually talking to a MD friend of mine um, and he was saying that uh, doctors only spend about like one hour uh, total on nutrition when they're going through med school. And, and if they do talk, well, oh, and like what they study. Yeah. But it, yeah. the nutrition they know is standard food pyramid bullshit. Yeah. 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 Like exactly. you're eating too much meat. Like what? Like what? No, you're eating too much bullshit. Like you're eating all these starches and that's why your cholesterol is so high. And all you have to do is eat steak and bacon all the time and you're <laughs> going to be great. I mean, that sounds crazy, but we all know that's true. Yeah. 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 Do you see uh, a lot of uh, the founders that you're currently advising and also the people that are your friends, do, do you see them going through the whole, uh, I need to work as hard as possible while giving up my health at the same time? Do you see a lot we, of that happening? We, we see it. My um Two of my partners are very young, uh, young guys that are super alpha hard workers. Um, they are also very into keto. Actually, not keto. That's when. Uh, what is it when you just eat meat? What is that? Mm -hmm. uh, that's carnivore. Yeah, yeah the carnivore yeah. diet. I mean, like, he, like literally, like it's steak, eggs, and bacon. Um, and they, but they work out a lot. But every yeah. once in a while, they work too hard and they balloon up a little bit. They get puffy. Um, mm. But generally, they're pretty good about it. Um, some of the founders we see all the time, but you know, we have 150 investments. Like we can't talk to all of them all the time, but, and I'm not going to like some people, some of this stuff is too political. Um, yeah. Some of them are vegetarians or vegan and that's fine. Like whatever. I'm not going to debate with them on that. <laughs> so don't want to debate with, uh, with them on that. It's just gonna, it's just going to cause you some mental anguish and definitely yeah, not going to get them. anywhere. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, all the vegans, cause they immediately tell you they're fucking vegan. And so it's just, what are you going to debate with them about? Right. <laughs> and I think they have some good points on animal welfare anyway. So yeah. I don't have much to say to them, other than the yeah. steak tastes really good. And, and, you know, talking about animal welfare, I know this is something that you would do if you weren't doing what you're doing right now. Like what kind of, what kind of rules would you make or what kind of uh, things would you lobby for, uh, to, to look after the welfare of animals? Well, first of all, I, I'm selective in animal welfare. For example, I hate cats. I don't like cats. <laughs> I do not enjoy cats. I'm also allergic to cats, but they're just, Same. Yeah. I'm not going to yeah. say I don't care about cats, but like cat welfare is not on my top hundred list. Right. As Chamath would say, it's below my line. Right. Yeah. And I'm glad there are people out there who like cats and I hope they do well. I don't actively try to hurt cats, but I just don't care about cats, but dogs are meaningful to me. And so I spend most of my charitable dollars. In fact, 90% of them, if you take out politics, which isn't really charity, it's just buying politicians. Um, then the, the charitable dollars are almost all towards animal welfare and particularly dogs. And that is, um, I have worked in dog shelters and one really sad thing is volunteers at dog shelters are almost always uh, drunk drivers. They have mm -hmm. community service and they choose that. When I was volunteering at, at a dog shelter, cleaning up dog shit, I was literally the only volunteer that was just there because they wanted to help the dog. So one is like people should just volunteer at their dog shelters. It can add incredible value and you can just walk dogs and it's great. Um, but uh, there's a model, there's a, there's a, a, a dog shelter here in Florida called big dog ranch rescue. And I visit a lot of, shelters and rescues and try to understand how they operate this one is very special and i think their model needs to be duplicated and the main thing they do is a dog in a shelter is almost always alone the reason it's alone is dogs fight and when you feed them you don't know if one dog is eating the other dog's food so you can't monitor medications and food so they just keep them alone 
and they generally don't let them socialize at all because that's when fights break out. This place actually has four dogs in a room and that is very expensive. And, and for example, somebody has to watch all the dogs eat. So a lot of, a lot more people have to work there. And then you have to like actually sort of figure out the dogs that are going to fight and not fight. And so keep them like in equal temperaments and that, and they have mistakes and sometimes fights break out, but you know, it's fine mostly. But that costs like their budget's like $10 million a year and they save about 3,000 dogs a year. So that's about $3,000 per saved dog. Most of these shelters are working on five, $50 per saved dog, right? But um, that model is beautiful and the dogs can live a happy life there. And so I really like that. I'm also like any kind of model that helps us deal with livestock in a humane way, I'm going to be all for. And I understand that means the price of food will increase dramatically. I'm absolutely willing to pay it we have if we can find out ways that even lower income people can eat proper food without the with in a humane way it'd be really good yeah yeah that's uh that's an interesting one one of my uh friends is actually trying to uh find a way to do uh, sustainable agriculture um mm -hmm. but but i don't think he's got uh i don't think he's got there yet i don't think anyone has gone there yet but you know yeah. we can only uh hope and pray and just pray that uh the world doesn't go to beyond meat and um you know just eating meat you know synthesized meat for the rest of our lives so yeah, yeah. and uh what about yourself if there's one thing that uh you would think about yourself and and want to change or improve on you know what would one of those things be for you well physically i'll never be happy um really so even even with all the change that you made Already. Well, I mean, I, I, yeah. Well, first of all, if I was like, oh, I'm good now, I'd gain 50 pounds over the next six months, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a, mm -hmm. you know, it, you're all, this constant fight. And I think that's good. And I enjoy working out. It makes me feel good. So that's fine. But yeah, I, right now, I'd love to lose another 20 pounds. Okay. Um, okay. The, uh, I, so my personality type, I mentioned, I'm, I'm paranoid. I'm a high functioning paranoid. My biggest problem is lack of patience. And mm -hmm. so um, I am always struggling with patience. So narcissists, their biggest problem is they can't shut up about themselves. And it's annoying. Um, psychopaths, their biggest problem is they have no empathy and they want to kill people, right? But with paranoids, it's that we lack, we can't deal with bullshit. We detect bullshit quickly. And then any, any kind of bullshit is, we have no patience for it. And so sometimes internal communications, like, there needs to be a little bullshit as we work stuff out. I'm always working on that. Just Mike, just be patient. Just be quiet for a couple minutes. Let it work itself out. But it's a struggle, and it will always be a struggle for me. Um, that's the main thing. Yeah, and then and <laughs> what does that what does that come out as? Like when you're when you're uh, not being patient with uh, with something that needs to happen. I mean, it can come out in a variety of factors, but the main one that people sense, and they've told me this, is that I'm acting in a way that makes them feel like I think they're really stupid. Mm. So mm -hmm. that's not good, right? Even though inside my head, I might be thinking this person is really stupid, but like, it's not helpful and it doesn't build camaraderie. So um, it's, it's always, you know, it's, it, it's just always going to be a thing. So, mm. yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. I, I do believe that I suffer from the same fate. And when you say like paranoid as well, uh, does that also mean that you are uh, in constant kind of like, not necessarily worry, but thinking about kind of like all the little things that could necessarily go wrong and making sure that you're doing something about them or well, does look, that I, also mean I am about that? basically a prepper. I mean, I have a couple mm. of years worth of food and I own every gun you can buy. Um, mm. That might be that, but it's more, I'm always looking for schemes and plots. 
Mm-hmm. Even And I see them even if they're not there. So dysfunctional paranoids, low-functioning paranoids, they see these conspiracy theories, they believe they're real, and then they act on it and they hurt people or mm-hmm. they end up in jail, right? Or they're just the crazy uncle. I am generally like pretty good at like things start spinning in my mind, but I think through it and it's like, it's unlikely that's accurate. Right. And so um, I, I don't really suffer from the, the really bad stuff where you become a criminal or, or just not functional in society. But yeah, I see schemes and plots everywhere. I'm always trying to figure out without even thinking about it. What's, why are you really doing this? What's really your goal? Hmm. Like if you compliment a narcissist, they're like, that's awesome. I feel good. Like, literally that's, that's great. If you compliment me, I'm thinking, why are you being a sycophant? Like what's up? What's in it for you? Like, I'm not that good looking. I'm not that smart. Like, what is it you want from me? Okay. Well, maybe you're just being pleasant, but like, and it's funny, like in my head, like, I'm like, what, what are they, what are they doing? What are they, how are they trying to manipulate me? So, yeah, yeah. I, I kind of had a, a little bit of the same thing. It's like, um, and this is one of the reasons why I say don't take insults and, uh, compliments, uh, too seriously or yeah. way to your head because one, it takes you off like your internal, uh, basis of like how you yeah. think of yourself but also it's like I, I do feel that sometimes when people do these things they're doing it to move you in well like one way or yeah. another uh do you feel like you get born that way or does it happen as a result of like the epigenetic uh landscape like uh, just like the environment that you're in at that particular amount of psychologists time? believe you're born fairly pure of heart and it's less genetic and more you know your parents always fuck you up mm-hmm. um one of the stories i loved about this is like um you know, psychopaths are often just psychologists believe, right? Who knows that they, they go through a period of like lacking empathy in their life. And so they just, they, they turn that off and they don't understand what it means. They literally can't feel it. Histrionic personality type is super interesting. And it, it, it literally comes from like your parents, like when you go through puberty and your body changes, your parents like treat you differently. Suddenly they're uncomfortable around you and you realize like it's, it's not really sex, but you have this power over them. And then if you do certain things, you have more power over them. And it's sexual stuff, even though you're not thinking of it sexually. Um, and uh, it, I find that stuff interesting. The main thing is that you just know, like, you're going to fuck your kids up. It's just how are you going to fuck them up? And there's better ways than other ways when you do yeah. it. So, yeah. 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 Uh, and how exactly does uh, this uh, paranoid mindset assist you when it comes to uh, business and when it comes to, uh, yeah. to uh, entrepreneurship? Uh, I rarely, like we have had surprisingly few scams pulled on us. Um, so we're very worried about security where you can get hacked and then that's really nothing you can do other than be paranoid about security, but like the bullshit you get in pitches, um, where stuff ends up being like a scam. I, I mean, we've, we've not had that happen to us and we've had it happen to investors I respect. And so I think I have a really good detector of that. Mm. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, and then the other thing is, you know, the bullshit meter, like if you are bullshitting, I immediately understand you're bullshitting. And then I can dig in just on that. It's part of why I think I was a good interviewer back in the day when I did that all the time is I could, you know, I get these answers and sometimes these CEOs are super great with press and they can spin off the top of their head, all kinds of nonsense. that sounds good, but I'd be like, well, wait, well, let's dig in on that. And then no, 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 let's keep digging in on that. And pretty soon they break and you get the truth or in the case of the Yahoo CEO, they call me a fucker and they well, they walk off stage. And um, and so that, I think, is useful as an investor because like wherever there's bullshit, you want to dig in and understand what the truth is at the bottom of it. Gotcha. And uh, I saw an example of that. Uh, I think you're doing a, um, you're doing a kind of like a, 
in-person interview uh, at TechCrunch at one of like the events with Brad, uh, Brad Garlinghouse. And okay. um, yeah. one interviewer was just particularly, or the interviewer was just particularly like aggressive and just very, okay. just kind of like bitey. But, you know, it's, uh, you know, I think like coming from that background, uh, you can also call out bullshit and be okay with that as well. And yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. it's good to be in the, good to be with conflict or good to be uh, not afraid of uh, conflict. No, conflict either. is where truth is found. Like you need conflict um, yeah. to find truth. It's it's yeah. why our judicial system is, it, you know, you have a prosecutor and defense. You need both sides to get to the truth. So, yeah. Awesome. All right. So final question right here is, uh, you know, what is the one activity or person uh, that makes you happiest in this world? Well, I mean, uh, activities with Natalia make me happy. <laughs> uh, you know, Natalia and I, um, we, like I said, it's pretty hot here. Um, but we have a habit of whatever we're doing at about six o'clock at night, about an hour before it gets properly dark, we just get on the bikes and we take the dogs and, you know, one dog's on the ground, like, you know, next to me, but, and we go slow and then the other dog's in the basket. And, you know, for like 20, 25 minutes, we just ride around the neighborhood and it, it's, it's, it's like the most peaceful part of my day and I, and I really enjoy it. And then other activities with her are just as spectacular. So yeah, Natalia is my rock. So amazing. Yeah. Uh, uh, one, one other question is, uh, you have this, uh, 20 minute, uh, bike ride that you do with Natalia. Is there yeah. any other practices that, uh, that ground you, uh, other than exercise as well? Yeah. Working out. Like I, yeah. I mean, I'm in the gym. So because I have my own gym, I'll take like what should be a 45 minute workout and do it over a couple minutes. One, I think it's actually better with building muscle when you take very long rests. Um, but two, I just, I have good internet down there. I'm working sometimes I'm in the middle of a call and it, it's just the best part of my day. It's like, mm-hmm. other than the bike ride with Natalia is like being in the gym and, and, and doing all that. I mean, I just love it. So, yeah, I, I tell all my uh, entrepreneur friends as well. It's just like, uh, and my clients just like when you, when you're inside of the gym, like that's actually where you could get like your best work done. Cause you have all these endorphins, you're thinking about new things. Yeah. You're super creative. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, Michael, and the fact that you yeah. like, sometimes you're like super tired and you don't want to work out and then you just force yourself and you always feel great afterwards it's a real thing and so and, if you're really tired just work out lift some weights and you're gonna feel great yeah and those turn out to be like the best workouts the best yeah, yeah. Fact, i'm gonna go work out right now sweet yeah. sweet awesome and and off of no sleep whatsoever i love that yeah i won't do cardio today i'll just end up getting sick if i do that but yeah <laughs> it's uh i saw well it's actually also leg day today so that's maybe it's gonna become chest and back day today instead. yes <laughs> <laughs> i wrote this yesterday i was like uh i wrote it to you i was like whoever like looks forward to leg day is uh, no, either I, not doing it right or they're a fucking liar right. yeah, yeah no leg day is is terrible yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. but it's necessary yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for coming on. I Thanks really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, Dan. Someday I hope we can meet in person. I'd love to work yeah. out with you sometime. So. 100%. Um, and uh, where can people find you if they want to get a hold of you? Oh, Twitter, at Arrington is the best way. Yeah. yeah. All right, sweet. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it, brother. Thank you. If you're enjoying this podcast, please hit subscribe on whichever platform you're tuning in from. Help Dan and the rest of the team get the word out to more entrepreneurs like yourself and leave an honest review for the show. It would mean the world to us if you can help in those two ways. Dan reviews all the feedback on the show, so we can't wait to hear what you've got for us. This show is made for your benefit, so be sure to reach out if you have any ideas on topics that we can cover on the show or people we should interview. You're listening to the High Performance Founder Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. 
Until next time. Get back.